Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Today is Sunday, January 17, 2021. On this day in 1950, a group of 11 men stole more than $2.7 million from an armored car depot belonging to the Brinks Company. It was the largest heist in U.S. history at that time. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a Spotify original from Parcast. Today we're exploring the Great Brinks Robbery. It was a heist so thoroughly planned out that the whole endeavor, start to finish, was planned over the duration of three years. To learn about its almost perfect execution, let's begin by going back to North End, Boston, Massachusetts, on January 17, 1950, just before 7.30 p.m. At the Brinks warehouse, five employees were counting and storing away money. Brinks trucks had picked all the cash up from customers in Boston that day and brought it back to this warehouse for sorting. It was a job these workers did every evening, without fanfare or issue. But this night was different. As the employees counted the money, the group of burglars used copied keys to simultaneously enter the warehouse from multiple locked doors. They spoke very little to each other, and their features were obscured behind rubber Halloween-type masks and chauffeur's caps. They surrounded the employees and aimed guns at them, then told them to lie on the floor. The robbers tied the workers' arms behind their backs and covered their mouths in tape. It all happened within minutes. Moments later, they were stacking the money in bags. It seemed like the heist was perfect. Then suddenly, a buzzer rang out. The thieves stopped what they were doing and rushed to one of the employees. The burglars removed the tape from his mouth and asked what that noise was. He said that the person ringing the buzzer was a garage attendant trying to get inside. The thieves moved to capture the man, but before they reached him, they walked away from the door. He had no idea there was a robbery underway. Then the robbers returned to stuffing money in the sacks. Minutes later, they were out the door and gone. After that, it became front page news. People were fascinated by this well-executed heist of such a large sum of money, and they were even more intrigued by the fact that the FBI had no solid leads whatsoever. The Brinks Company offered $100,000 for clues, roughly equal to a million dollars today. But despite the FBI receiving calls from around the country, this massive reward brought them no closer to identifying the perpetrators. The lack of suspects was all the more galling because the authorities did manage to uncover a few pieces of evidence. 
They had the rope and one of the chauffeur caps from the crime scene, which had been left behind. Unfortunately, they didn't provide any useful clues. However, the authorities' luck seemed to change when they located parts of the getaway truck. The vehicle had been disassembled with an acetylene torch and a sledgehammer and left at a dump in Stoughton, a town outside Boston. While the FBI didn't recover any specific clues from the parts, the fact that the pieces were in Stoughton gave them a hint that at least some of the thieves might be living near there. This location, coupled with a series of underworld rumors, was the break the FBI needed. It took them more than two years to narrow down the list of suspects to 10 men. All of them were connected to criminality in some way. However, every single one of the 10 had an alibi for where they were on the night of January 17, 1950. And yet, some of their alibis involved activities that began at 7 p.m. on the dot. It was too specific to be a coincidence. On November 25, 1952, hearings began in which the FBI brought what evidence they had before a grand jury. The Bureau wanted to bring these 10 men to trial, but when the grand jury weighed the evidence on January 13, 1953, they felt there wasn't enough to identify the participants in the robbery. After all, the perpetrators were disguised, and there were very few eyewitnesses to the crime as it was happening. And the last point which deflated the FBI's hopes was the fact that they couldn't compel anyone to give testimony. Their usually reliable underworld contacts' lips were sealed in regards to this crime, and it seemed like nothing could open them. For the FBI, this was a very discouraging result. What made it all the worse was that they were racing against the statute of limitations. If the thieves could avoid being prosecuted for six years to the day after the crime took place, they could get off scot-free. For this reason, the grand jury's decision was a huge setback. It seemed as if the thieves were going to get away with the robbery entirely. But then, in January 1956, three years after the grand jury declined to deliver an indictment, one of the perpetrators confessed, and the whole thing fell apart like a house of cards. Coming up, an underworld figure spills the beans to the FBI. Listeners, have you heard the eerie new podcast, Superstitions? Every Wednesday, explore the varying beliefs people around the world fear and follow in this mystifying series from Parcast. You do not want to miss it. Each week, step inside stories that illustrate the horror, weirdness, and truth behind humanity's strangest codes of conduct. Why do black cats represent witchcraft? What's the point of carrying a rabbit's foot around with you? And how come certain films seem cursed and others don't? Each new episode of Superstitions presents a story that unlocks the mysteries of unorthodox traditions and surreal phenomena. They may seem cryptic or illogical or completely insane, but then again, do they? Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Superstitions, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. 
after 11 thieves executed one of the most notorious and lucrative robberies in history on January 17, 1950, it took the FBI years to track down any solid leads. Meanwhile, the six-year clock on the statute of limitations was ticking. One of the FBI's suspects was a Boston criminal underworld figure named Joseph O'Keefe. However, like the rest of the men on the Bureau's watch list, he had a solid alibi for 7 p.m. on the night of the robbery, 30 minutes before the crime began. Because of that, the grand jury wouldn't hand down an indictment on him or any of the other suspected co-conspirators. It was a deeply frustrating turn of events for the FBI. But then their luck changed. Days before the statute of limitations was set to expire, Joseph O'Keefe decided to talk. He told investigators who exactly was involved in the heist and how they'd set up the crime in the first place. It began with a criminal named Anthony Pino, who was known in the underworld as being excellent at casing locations before a crime. Inspired by the possibility of stealing from the Brinks warehouse, he assembled a group of trusted criminals. One of those men was Joseph O'Keefe. As part of the gang, he and the rest of the men Pino assembled began to survey the Brinks warehouse from the roofs of neighboring buildings. Using binoculars, they spent over a year watching the comings and goings of the trucks and employees. Then they started sneaking into the warehouse at night after all the employees had gone home. The criminals began a process of gradually stealing the lock cylinders from the warehouse doors and having a locksmith make counterfeit keys that fit them. This took place across at least four or five nights in the autumn of 1949. Pino leaned on the locksmith's owner to stay open late in order to do this after hours. Then, once a duplicate key was made, the criminals returned the stolen cylinder before any Brinks employees noticed. It was a brilliant setup, planned nearly to perfection, and the crime itself went off without a hitch. They escaped with millions of dollars, and no one was hurt. Afterwards, however, the criminals faced their greatest threat, each other. Pino's plan was for them to divide up the money after the robbery. However, Joseph O'Keefe didn't have anywhere safe to store his share of the money, so instead he gave it to another one of the criminals, Adolf Jazz Maffey. But after O'Keefe was arrested for an unrelated crime, the majority of his money disappeared. Maffey claimed that part of it had been stolen and the rest was used to pay for O'Keefe's legal defense, but O'Keefe didn't believe him. After that, the tension between them escalated dramatically. O'Keefe wrote letters threatening to talk to the authorities unless the rest of the crew did something about the missing money. In response, they sent an assassin. O'Keefe was attacked and wounded, but managed to escape with his life. About six months later, he indicated to the authorities that he was willing to talk. After O'Keefe's confession, eight of his fellow Brinks burglars were tried and given life sentences. Two more died before they could be taken to court. O'Keefe himself was freed from jail in 1966 and assumed a new identity for protection. 
He died in Los Angeles in 1996 at the age of 67. As for the money, a little less than half of the loot was never found. Maybe it's still out there today. Thanks for listening to Today in True Crime. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Today in True Crime is a Spotify original from Parcast. You can find more episodes of Today in True Crime and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll be back with a brand new episode tomorrow in True Crime. Today in True Crime is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Gatovich. This episode of Today in True Crime was written by Nicholas Zwart, with writing assistance by Alex Benedon, and fact-checking by Adriana Romero. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Bad omens, good fortune, pure luck? Take a closer look at what you believe in and follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Superstitions. New episodes air weekly, every Wednesday. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.